Hey everyone, this is Eric Leupold with Two Guys in a Bible. Today's episode is a live audience recording that we did a few weeks ago. But due to uh, corruption of the audio file for the primary recording, what you're about to listen to is the audio from the backup recording device. It should be fine, but it will sound a little different. So, with that said, I hope that you enjoy today's show. Thank you. This is... Two guys in a Bible. <laughs> oh, this is a weekly conversation on theology, culture, and God's word. My name is Dylan Keniston, and I am joined by Sir Eric Lupold. You invited me. <laughs> I invited you on a couple of episode introductions. Appreciate them. Yeah, exactly. A couple of times I've knighted you. Yeah. We're also joined by uh, Tim Butek. Yeah. I hope I pronounced the last name correctly. Close enough. Yeah. Close enough. <laughs> and Tim is pastor here at Hilltown Baptist Church. Tim, welcome. I'm glad to be here. And we are also joined, uh, we're doing a little bit of a special episode today. We're joined by a live studio audience. I don't know if it, studio is, <laughs> we're in the church lobby. Live lobby audience. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so what's the occasion, right? So this is actually a really neat opportunity. We've been doing a series in the podcast on idolatry. And we've been talking about the various forms of idolatry and how it manifests itself in our lives, in uh, in society generally, um, and, and so here is kind of an opportunity to talk uh, in particular about some of that latter portion, kind of culminating the series on idolatry in the release of a work that, Eric, you've been working on for some time. How long have you been working on this? This is a book that you wrote. Yeah, I th- uh, it's been about a little over a year, a year and a quarter perhaps. So the book is uh, Image of Gold, The Tyranny of Our Idolatry, um, and it's available. Where can, where can folks find this book, by the way? Uh, uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's paperback on Amazon and Kindle as well. Amazon and Kindle. And hopefully, uh, trying to get an audiobook. That's my next goal. And to get it on audiobook. Yeah, oh, Eric, cool. he's got to do it in a British accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you did knight me, so I need to try the British accent. You can pull off the British accent. I don't know, man. That's going to be a little rough. It's probably going to sound Russian instead of <laughs> British, but. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, well, so this is really a, a unique opportunity for us to uh, talk through the book and a little bit about some some of its content. You know, Tim and I had a chance to read it, and Eric, we, we um, I mean, praise God for the work that you've put in to, mm-hmm. to write this book. Uh, I know it's something that is, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of really important topics that are near and dear to um, many hearts and, and that impact many lives. Uh, and so it's, it really is something that I know it was done out of a heart of service to, to God's people. And so we thank you for that um, and, and praise God for it. So with that, uh, we have a couple of questions. So we'd love to kind of chat about the book and kind of sure. dive into it. Right. So with that, um, probably the way this will work is we, we've got, we, we covered, so I was talking with Tim earlier. And we were kind of go, looking at each other's questions. By the way, Eric has not seen any of these questions. He doesn't know any of the questions that are coming up, right? So this will be even more painful for him <laughs> and even more fun for us. <laughs> a little nervous now. It's okay. Um, but Tim and I had a chance to connect on our, our questions, and we were talking through them. And it, it, I don't know, we didn't intentionally do it this way, but many of the questions kind of seemed to stack, like, chronologically through the book. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tim, uh, a number of Tim's questions kind of had some of the earlier portions of the book. Uh, touched on, and then mine were some of the latter portions. So I think that's how we'll structure some of the questions. So Tim is going to take the first couple of questions, and then sure. and then I'll jump in from there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, for now, All right. just help help us understand what was your original motivation for putting pen to paper, and 
creating the book. Um, I mean, what did you perceive in society or in the church that you felt needed to be addressed? Yeah. How, like, how did that become, how did that manifest itself? How did it become apparent to you? Yeah, how it all began, yeah. right? So I think there were, I could say, looking back on it, there were two avenues that brought me to this point of, of writing this book. And, and the first is theological, mm-hmm. uh, just reading about idolatry in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. What does God say about it? What does it look like? And what happens when, when God's people engage in idolatry, or when anyone really get, engages in idolatry? Um, so it's kind of, that's kind of more of the theological aspect of, you know, what does it mean to worship an idol, to serve it, and to become like it? There's a, that's a general theme throughout Scripture, mm-hmm. where God gives people over to something. You know, the nation of Israel in the book of Judges, they, they engage in idolatry, and then it talks about God giving them over to the Midianites mm-hmm. or into the hand of the Philistines. So they're under oppression that's very much physical oppression, but it seems like it always stems back to some form of idolatry. And even in, uh, uh, with Gideon, everyone, everyone knows Gideon, right? But uh, the first thing he's commanded to do is get rid of the statue of Baal in his father's house before we're going to set Israel free from the hand of the of the Midianites. So that was that's one avenue there. And the second one was more historical. So I'm a big history buff. I, I love history, uh, World War II history. I've, I've read a decent amount of books uh, on Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union. Uh, and it, it seemed like there were some interesting uh, parallels with how the people in those cultures at that time were, were relating to their governments and some of the things that were going on that that really struck me as a form of idolatry, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, certainly uh, with Hitler in Germany and with Stalin in the Soviet Union. So I guess I saw that I, I saw that connection there, and I saw some parallels even in Scripture with, let's say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his tyrannical behavior, uh, certainly in the Book of Daniel. And uh, I saw that connection, and then I also started to become concerned with the direction of our of our own culture here in the West. Um, I, I start off the book with a, with a preface, uh, a good friend of mine, we were, grew up together, and uh, he's particularly uh, hostile to our, our current society, thinks that it's, uh, the whole system is essentially broken, um, and, he, and he almost laments that it's still standing, and he's approaching it from a, an atheistic, agnostic uh, perspective there. And then we see also with like, the, the rise of, a, of, of even socialism, uh, in our in our culture, a cry for that, mm-hmm. and it's like, what's the heart behind that? Why why are people going that way, and what is the result of that kind of attitude? So I guess that's what led me to, to write this. Okay, yeah. So so the, what you see in society, given the background, mm-hmm. theologically, culturally, historically, mm-hmm. you're you're seeing us. You feel like you're we're circling back around to some of those same patterns. In a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And that, you know what's interesting I caught on is this, that language of, like, the system is broken, right? Like, I yeah. hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it could be coming from a lot of different angles. It could, it could be coming from somebody who's, you know, um, you know socially in, in, in an American context, maybe more left-leaning and thinks of the system as kind of the, the corporatization and, and, you know, corporate interests and corporate elites kind of ruling uh, versus someone who might be more right-leaning and sees kind of, more uh, government acting as kind of that system. But in either case, a lot of people get, you, you hear this a lot, right? The system, whatever that means, the system, something is broken. Yeah. And, and it seems like in, in your book and some of the connections that you're trying to, 
what's really broken, what's really at root in that, ties back to idolatry. A spiritual issue that leads to physical manifestations, physical results. Right. right. There. So So I've got a couple of questions. Uh, In your first chapters, and in chapter one particularly, you're uh, defining idolatry, helping us understand where you see it in scripture and and how... how Scripture begins to identify it in the human heart. You say, at one point you say, mm-hmm. quote, idolatry involves exchanging the creator for something created, which is, we get that from Romans 1. You, we see that in, in, in the Greek And then you yeah. say, putting one's ultimate hope and trust in something or someone other than God. And then you say, this is what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That You say that on page 9. Well, a few pages later, page 13, you say, quote, we do this on a daily basis with every sin we commit. So, let me, let me ask a clarifying sure, question. Yeah. It seems logical to, to me, it seems logical to say that the larger umbrella would, would be sin, yeah. and that one of those sins is idolatry. Yeah. Help me understand your, the, the, the way you're bringing this out. Um, almost sounds like all, because you say all sin, uh, uh, page 13, all sins are rooted in idolatry, almost as if that's the bigger umbrella. Yeah, in a way. So yeah, can you yeah. clarify? Yeah, I think uh, I, I do mention kind of like a, a a little I idolatry and a big I capital I idolatry. And so like the little I idolatry, we we make this this statue, we bow down to this statue, mm-hmm. we offer incense and mm-hmm. and whatever to that statue, and that's a form of mm-hmm. idolatry, of course, and it's more of an Old Testament form of idolatry. But then there seems like in Scripture uh, this idea that. Uh, where ser- you're serving an idol, and, and Jesus talks about uh, mammon. Uh, you know, you can't serve both God and mammon. And who's mammon, and where does that come at right. uh, there? And obviously, he's not talking about a particular statue that the Pharisees or the people of Israel would be bowing down to, but it's right. something right. else behind it. And when I tried to reflect on what is idolatry, it's, a, it's exchanging God for something else. And in the garden, it would seem like. Uh, in that moment when, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they decided that God might be wrong. They decided that they are going to be the judge of what is right and what is wrong, and that the devil might be right. And so they decided what was best for them was to go their own route. And in a way, then, they, they had made themselves out to be God. And, and it's interesting that even Satan says... If you eat from that tree, you will be like God. And they said, that sounds good. I want to be like God. And so that, I think, is the root uh, of idolatry there. And so not every sin is idolatry, but every sin seems like it springs from that idolatry. Uh, One uh, kind of a a pop culture reference would be The Lord of the Rings, when uh, in the movie and in the book as well, when Gollum or Smeagol, right, he that he finds the ring or he, with his friend, they're fishing uh, these two hobbit-like creatures, and uh, Smeagol says that this ring is precious to him, and he ends up strangling his friend and killing him because he wanted that precious uh, so badly, and it, and, and it led him to engage in, in murder. And you probably a very similar thing with Cain and Abel, or I, I would imagine. So, so always back behind that is a spiritual issue, and that's where I'll yeah. make that argument with high dollars. Good, yeah, that's yeah. helpful, yeah. I, um, all right, so throughout the book, and especially mm-hmm. in the first chapter while you're setting up your case, you tend, you tend to, as you're bringing out examples, you tend to uh, highlight examples like 
gambling, um, addictions. Um, I think you know. I think you use pornography as yeah. as one example. I understand, uh, and they very clearly make your point. I think that was really helpful. Um, help me out to and you know, in our audience for somebody who's like, um, you know, suburban, not given to those vices. Somebody uh, in, like a, in a more average um, uh, uh, background who doesn't interact with any of those vices. How do you see itself? How do you see this playing itself out in more common situations of life like that? Yeah, um, in our series of idolatry that Dylan and I have been doing on, on the podcast, uh, we've covered a, a multiple things. Uh, work could be one of them, you know, workahol, workaholics, workaholism, uh, where you find your meaning, your pleasure, your joy, your satisfaction in work uh, there, and it, it just takes control of you, uh, and you, you never stop thinking about it. I think. Um, as I, I was reading in preparation to write this book, one, one book I recommend is, is Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, mm -hmm. which he talks about how to kind of discern idols in your life. And he says some of the things to look at is what do you spend your time thinking about uh, on your free time? How do you spend your money? Um, where's your, you know, where do your heart affections lead to? So it's kind of like time, money, thought, all those things is a way to determine hey, this thing might be an idol in your life. And it could be small, it could be entertainment, uh, it, it could be food, it could be work, it could be any, any matter of things. And I use the hard examples, the extreme examples, I would say, of addiction and gambling to kind of hit that home. But it, it would be applicable in, in other ways too. Yeah, okay, so yeah. then that kind of leads up to the next question that I had was, um, at one point you say, uh, in chapter two, you say, the human heart desperately yearns for peace, prosperity, security, and justice. It seems the strongest of these desires is often justice. You say that on page 43. Honestly, I'm actually, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I may have guessed that in our culture, uh, maybe prosperity and security might have been higher on that list. Yeah. Given what, some of what I see, the, the chase, the pursuit, of prosperity and security that I see. Yeah. Um, so what makes you say justice? Mm -hmm. Why? Why do you? What did you see? Yeah. Makes you identify justice. As it's kind of subjective. It's. It is my. Is what I perceive as to be the, the greatest of, of all things. But then I mean, in a way, the book. The book is like that's. It's not like that's the central statement. Sure. But that's sure. the idea that. The, that yeah. The book about. I think generally speaking, because, and looking at historically, I mean, with the rise of you know, let's say. In Germany, the rise of the Nazi Party, or the or the rise of the of the, the Bolsheviks in, mm -hmm. in in Russia before mm -hmm. the revol revolution, there was a lack of prosperity in those cultures at that time. Mm -hmm. Great poverty, uh, horrible inflation, and yet, but but they all kept saying that the the general mantra was, well, the reason why there's no prosperity or security is because we are being oppressed by some X group, Hitler. Pent, uh, put the blame mostly on the Western powers. It's France's fault, it's Britain's fault, it's the Jews' fault. And the Soviets, the, the Bolsheviks, blamed the bourgeois, the, those who have mm -hmm. the, the production, those who have money. It's their fault, they're oppressing, and that's why that injustice is why you don't get your prosperity. That's why you don't have security or a blessing. So it seems like uh, that is the pattern that, that we see. Um, we definitely have prosperity in our Western culture, but it seems like the biggest thing that's taking everyone's attention on on the news and on the internet yeah. is cries for social justice, um, whether it's you know systemic racism, 
uh, you know, gender issues, sexuality, anything like that. It's not so much we need more stuff. It seems to be more like there is oppression going on and it needs to be dealt with yeah. like, and then right now. When there's a crisis uh, in our economy, we're, we look to the government to bail us out. That's right. And to, to, to save us, to be our savior. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, that, so, so in chapter two, you say the human heart desperately yearns for these things. Yeah. Um, uh, if, if we, yeah, if we go further, um, I was reading. And I also want to say, if I may, real yeah. quick, that I think that stems back to the, to the Garden of Eden. Like, just think about how there was prosperity and blessing and, and, and right relationship in the garden between Adam and Eve, between Adam and the creation, and between Adam and Eve and God. So everything was, was right. And then that's all broken because of, because of sin. But now there's a, there's a lacking, there's a, something's missing there. There's something that, that lacking. And I think all people, have, all humans have a, have a recognition that something is wrong with this world. Now they all have different views as to what it should look like, right? Obviously, you know, members of the Islamic State have a different idea of what the perfect world would look like versus what, what we would say. But they, everyone recognizes the world is messed up and it needs to be resolved. And, but the question it comes down to, if you don't believe that God, and, and more specifically the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, if you don't believe that he's going to fix the world, what's your only recourse is to turn to, you know, in a secular society, it's turned to government. Who, who, if, if there is no God, who is going to bring heaven on earth? Who's going to fix our problems? Who's going to bring us the utopia? It's going to be Caesar. He's the next best thing, quote unquote, right? I mean, he's the closest you can get to a God figure if you don't believe that there is a God. And so that's just you know one thing I wanted to point out there from that. Can I can I keep on going to chapter six, or did you want to no, jump? No, Tim, you're not. I'm just <laughs> totally kidding. You must No, please do. No, totally kidding. <laughs> well, if, uh, so yeah. as I read through chapter six, you begin to get into the idea of Caesar as government, um, yeah, and the conflict between Caesar and Christ. There are a number of statements that. Can I say they they sound like Caesar and Christianity are inherently juxtaposed? That Caesar is, is inherently evil. You say, you know, how do we respond to tyrants when that tyrant is the civil government? Page one sixty. Mm. You say, for um, in fact, uh, Dylan, you you brought this quote out. Um, so I don't I don't mean to steal your thunder later, but for but he will. For but he, it's okay. It says for, <laughs> for if, but here we go. Uh, for you say for if, which can be read. Since, I think it's fair to read that as since there is no God above the state, then the state becomes, mm. the state itself becomes God, right? So you talk about the conflicts between Caesar and Christ, mm-hmm. that Caesar's attention being attracted and threatened by the rise of Christians as they grow in numbers. You make reference to that, page 121. Mm-hmm. That Caesar's goal is to, quote, usurp the role of Christ. So you're, you're highlighting the differences here between government and other common idols of money, reputation, acceptance. Yeah. Comfort, like those, those are kind of in, a, in another category to a degree. Because yeah. when when other idols, they don't think for themselves. But the government yeah. is filled with people that are crafting, that are shaping, that are that are moving in a direction, that are um, creating policy and, and operating on philosophy. Yeah. So, like, I can never say that money wants to take over my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I could say that metaphorically, but exactly. I can't because I'm the one who's actually controlling the dialogue yes. between me and money. Government is animated by the motives of the officials that make it up. So, how might you respond to a Christian who says, 
you're making you're making a big deal of something that's never been a problem for me. Like I don't idolize government, mm -hmm. so I don't have to worry about this. Like, how do you, how would you respond to somebody who just wants to kind of turn a blind eye to everything that's going on in our culture mm -hmm. and say that's not a problem? I don't know what you're making. Why why did you write this book? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So someone who who thinks this is not a problem for them particularly, right. or they think it's not a problem in the culture. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Maybe both. a little bit yeah. of both. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I would have to just ask some probing. I would have to ask some, some probing questions then. Like, I mean, do they, are they bothered by anything that goes on in our society? And, and if they are bothered, why are they bothered? Do they, you know, are they, are they upset when the economy tanks? Uh, when the natural disasters come, do they, get upset when FEMA doesn't arrive on time? I mean, are they looking for the government check to arrive? I mean, what, when things go badly, or when they see things that are going badly, who do they turn to, or who do they, they look to for a solution mm -hmm. to the right. problem? Yeah, exactly. It's like, who's so, going to fix? Who's going to fix it? X, whatever yeah, that is. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's how I would ask some questions there, and, and try to highlight, well, it seems like there are a lot of folks Maybe maybe they're maybe they're they're more they're louder rather than they're the majority. It's hard to tell with regards to you know the mass media that we culture that we live in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the louder voices are heard, but they might be a minority opinion still. Mm -hmm. uh, but so it seems like they're clamoring for more. And I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but in the beginning of my book, I I referenced a study or a, a, a poll that was taken by the Wall Street Journal, um, and it's. Uh, it was first done 20 years ago, I think, in, I believe, in 1995. And the question was, uh, pulled out the people, should the government do more, you know, to provide more, do more for yeah. you to fix your problems? And I think the percentage was like 28 or, or 30 percent of the people said yes. And they took the same poll uh, in 2018, so last year, and it was almost 60 percent. Like, it almost doubled in 20 years, the amount of people who said the government should do more to fix our lives and solve our problems. Yeah, yeah. And that is very interesting, considering that in 20 years, it's not like, you know, I mean, what is, you know, why has that, why has that changed? Why would it, so would it be fair to say, yeah. okay, so, so you might not, you might not actually idolize the government. You might not look, be, be looking at the government in this way of, of I need you to be my savior. Mm -hmm. But, like, whether we like it or not, whether I am or not, Mm -hmm. Our culture it is, our society is, and we have to pay attention to that. And yeah, because we live in a because that's the thing we live in a secular society, and I really, I, I mean, I'm all for religious liberty and mm -hmm. and a form of distinction, separation between church and state. I mean, I recognize the the beauty of that, but if you if you remove, if you say there is no God, like we are all going to get together and we're going to make policy and we're going to have a a society, but there is no God. At the center, I was like, "Well, but you can't, you can't have that. There's always something that's going to fill the void, right? Because who's the ultimate authority of, let's say, law? You know, um, someone could appeal to uh, the, you know, whatever the next court, and then appeal to the Supreme Court. Well, is the Supreme Court the final law of the land? If they declare it, is it, is it so? Um, do they have absolute power, or is there an authority above the Supreme Court, above, above the king?" Right? Or is the king have a divine right, if you will? And so I guess that's the question. That's why I make that point. Like, if, if you try to remove, there is no God, no, no Lord above 
right. Caesar, he right. does fill that void. He becomes Lord. Yeah, and yeah. we and we we need him to be. Exactly. So That's right. okay, let me just keep going because because yeah. that kind of sets up for uh, another question I have. You're on a roll. In chapter I'm seven, roll. you did a really nice treatment of uh, like of of the relationship between us and law and uh, yeah, just the treatment of the law in general. Help me understand when you say. Quote, if every citizen were perfect, then there would be no need for the civil government to reinforce laws, since none would ever be broken. Isn't there a difference mm. between being morally perfect and still needing structure and civil servants, right? So, mm. I mean, we wouldn't need a moral law because we'd still, you know, we would we would be morally perfect, but we'd still need a civil law, right? Because we'd still need somebody to tell us where the... Uh, start and stop of the local school's um, speed limit is, yeah. or, or yeah, yeah. how much taxes I'm supposed to pay if I'm in a certain bracket, or, yeah. like, that's, that's, we still need structure. Yes, yes. I wasn't, I guess I wasn't trying to say that we would need no structure okay. at all, okay. and that, that, that there's no reason for authority, but, but the primary, I do think the Bible, that shows that one of the primary roles of the civil government is to bear the sword, to, to punish evil, referencing Romans 13, 1 Peter uh, I believe chapter three. That's that's the primary yeah. job, and which it, is a moral, which is a enforcement. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Like, if you say like, if we, you, to your point, like we need some structure, right? Mm -hmm. And with with respect to structure, there are you, you know like speed limits, tax brackets. So now the follow up question being, if somebody doesn't abide by that, doesn't pay the taxes, they and doesn't don't pay the taxes, yeah. they don't, you know, about then what, right? And so now, the, now I think that ties back to what you're kind of saying, yeah. where kind of like the primary function of civil government being to to wield the sword and to yeah. to punish the wrongdoer. Yeah, but, but quite simply, I mean, uh, yeah, if everyone were sinless, mm -hmm. uh, we could be all put on a, on a deserted island and it would be very minimal structure needed. If we were perfect, sinless human beings, it would be, um, you know, it would be a beautiful place, right? We wouldn't have so many problems, <clears throat> I imagine. So, the, but the whole point of, of me bringing that out is that the reason for those laws is, as as Paul says, is for the lawless. Law is for the lawless because Christians don't need to be told, God's people don't need to be told not to murder. Mm -hmm. They so, already know, they already yeah. believe and, and recognize that and don't want to do that. Well, obviously, there are still, you know, we still sin, but that, the point still stands. I think. So, so in heaven, yeah. right? Will there be? Signs posted up saying, "Thou shalt not murder." <laughs> I don't believe so. No, probably not, right? I don't think so. I, no. Well, and and not to say that there, it's not to say that God has changed His mind on murdering. I mean, quite apart from the difficulty you might have for murdering a resurrected body, quite apart from that, <laughs> it's not that God has changed His mind. It's it's that there. I think to what you're saying, I think this case, what you're saying too is like that the impetus for that is kind of is gone. So even yeah. if there's some kind of a, a civil structure to the warp and woof of life as it's lived, the impetus for murder, the hate in the yeah. heart is, is gone. That, and, is that and, it, and it's hard to imagine what that looks like because yeah. we just don't li we don't live in that kind of a world. You know, I can't, yeah, it's hard to picture that, you know, so. But I want to come back to this this mom, suburban mom that you were talking about. Where, okay, so, you know, maybe it's not uh, uh, gambling and pornography and, and this and that, um, but maybe it's like you, you were mentioning work or, or 
video games. I don't know, are suburban moms into video games? It could be. <laughs> I hear no's. <laughs> um, I know uh, my, my lovely wife certainly is not, so that's okay. Yeah, that's um, but, but all that to say, so is it a fair summary to kind of put it, um, see like Tim Keller says, you know, an idol is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like work, good thing. Well, yeah, you know, but like, so, so, but it's taking a good thing and kind of making it like that, an ultimate thing he says, or what he means by that is something like, like that around which your identity is crafted. That's right. Right. Is that a fair? Your time? hope, your trust. Yeah. Yes. So, but is is it is it fair to make a distinction though between kind of like engaging in certain things that God says in absolute terms are wrong, yeah, and unlawful, yeah. versus kind of like these other things that we kind of make into capital I idols. Yeah. Ourselves <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, something like like pornography right. would be wrong at any time. Full stop. At all, at, at all times, right? Yeah. But, but you know, but, but uh, working, it could become an idol, mm. but it's also a good thing. Work is a good thing that existed prior to the fall. And uh, when, when, with my specific topic of government, uh, even though I do use the term Caesar more to refer to the inappropriate manifestation of, of a tyrant, idolatrous uh, uh, government, I do, uh, I clearly believe that there's a, a, an important role for the civil government, and that you certainly can have government without it becoming an idol, without idolatry. So I am in no way, shape, or form an, an anarchist sure. in any way, shape, or form. I think that's an unbiblical yeah. position to hate government or to see it all disappear. And I know of folks who do hold to an extreme libertarian, almost anarchist position. Uh, there are folks that hold to that position, and I just don't think it's biblical. Mm -hmm there so but uh, that's that yeah well I mean and, and in, in, in one sense you can't get around governance I mean God is God God <laughs> is sovereign and God governs and so it, and, and, and how he then governs it, like how human government institutions are outlined how, how God lays out parameters for that in his word I don't think it's I, I, there is a category for saying that like Government is a is a God ordained uh, yes. human institution. It is granted our condition, granted the world in which we live, yeah. and it, like there needs to be governance and there needs to be law. That's right. To to hem in, and it's part of God's common grace. Absolutely. Right? That how it manifests itself. Yeah. Um. So, so a couple of questions. So I want to pull out two quotes here. All right. And actually, so I, I feel a little bad. I forgot my copy of the book at home, so uh, Eric has graciously lent me this one. But I don't have all of my notes in it, so thank you. <laughs> quotes written out here. Um, okay, so page 51. All right. All right. Um, I'm going to pull out two quotes that I think are making the same points, uh, similar points, but feel free to give me pushback. Quote, yet if we do not place our ultimate hope and trust in our creator, we will necessarily turn to created things, namely government, to save us. If we refuse to cry out to the Lord, we will cry out to Caesar. I think you made that point mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. Similarly, page 84, mm -hmm. he, Caesar, functions as the source of their satisfaction. If they turn to Caesar for food, money, housing, and health care, he can accumulate power. Eventually, he becomes a twisted version of God. Yeah. So, I, I, I kind of take mm -hmm. that to be a central thesis of the book. That's part of it, yeah. That, that's one of them, right? Oh, yeah. That's kind of focal pillars of the book. So, as I was reading the book, there, all right, fair warning, I'm going to play devil's advocate. You do that well. I'm going to play devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 
It's a, it's a compliment, but not. <laughs> um, so as I was reading your book, there were moments when I, I, was, I just was wondering, just a thought experiment, right? All right. Why not both? Here's what I mean. Why not both what? Both God and government. Here's what I mean. Oh. Suppose we took every reference to government or Caesar in the book mm -hmm. and replaced it with medicine. What would happen? So I'm going to reread the quote from page 51 with that lens. Yet, if we do not place our if we do not place our ultimate hope and trust in our Creator, we will necessarily turn to created things, namely medicine, to save mm -hmm. us. If we refuse to cry out to the Lord, we will cry out to medicine. In other words. When we talk about medicine as Christians, we rightly think of medicine as a means in the economy of God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. right? So God is sovereign, we trust in God, yet we trust also in medicine because God has granted the blessing of modern medicine. Mm -hmm. But in the examples provided where the claim is that government usurps the role of God, you point to ways in which some would say God... So, so some might say God blesses us by means of government. So gun control, page 52. FEMA, page mm -hmm. 54. Mm -hmm. The Affordable Care Act, page 56. Uh, also known as Obamacare. So in other words, and I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate, but could someone look at the Affordable Care Act and say, praise God, I live in a country that supports citizens' health care so that they're paying homage to God above government? while enjoying these things as what they would see as an expression of the means of God's blessing? Okay, that's, that's a, a long question. That's right? a very long question. Do you see what I'm getting at? Well, I think I do. Okay. If, if I, when I answer, if I don't, just you know, do it again. <laughs> do it again. No, but uh, I guess to begin with whole medicine aspect, yeah. the, the first thing I would say to a person that exchanges the word for medicine is like, is medicine going to stop you from dying? Does medicine conquer death? No, and it won't, and it can't, right? So that's the one aspect. Like, medicine's a blessing, and medicine is useful, and it should be used, but it can never replace Christ, because only he has conquered death. And if we ever want to conquer death and live eternally, we need to look to him, not to any kind of earthly medicine that we could, you know, create. Because in the end, that's our, you know, human creation. We're doing it ourselves. Now... So does, does that well, so the praise and goodness that you gave to medicine in the first half of that statement, would you be willing to similarly extend that praise to the Affordable Care Act? I would say this. I would say that the limits, because I think you would probably agree that government, that government yeah. is not God and can't do whatever he wants. Yeah. Caesar is not able to do whatever he wants to do, and there's no, there's no holds barred, mm -hmm. right? So what, does, what, does, what kind of restrictions does God place Mm. On, on Caesar. Certainly, we see the restriction of medicine. Is medicine can't stop death. It can't end death, right? Um, and I would say I, I think Scripture also sets limits on what what the government is allowed to do. So I did use one example that I kind of wanted to play out this this mind game, if you will, this this hypothetical scenario. Let's say that you know, because we hear a lot with with a, with any kind of a, a violent gun attack. You know, it's like you know. We need more gun laws, we need more gun restrictions, one death is one too many, that kind of thing. And what that is basically saying is we need government to do something to end all gun violence. But, but here's the thing, play that out in your mind. Imagine a politician who stands up there and says, okay, how am I going to end all gun violence? Well, I need to put cameras on every street corner and in every building because how else can he become aware of pending 
violence unless he has cameras, knowledge, right? And then he needs agents, police officers, security officers, cops, wherever, in every location so they can respond. We need quick response, right? When any kind of perpetrator is going to spring up, we need to react quickly. And the last thing is he needs all the guns. We give him all the guns, now I'll minimize. So what does he need? He needs, he needs all knowledge, basically quasi all knowledge, cameras everywhere, quasi all presence, omnipresence, people everywhere, and quasi omnipotence, all power. And he is in a, in a way, he becomes quasi God. And if you look at Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, that's exactly what those nations did mm. in order to bring about their peaceful utopia, mm. right? So that's how I would kind of address that question. I think the Bible sets limits. Mm. And I think some of those limits, uh, gun control and the Affordable Care Act, is it the role of government to provide you with health, with health care? Mm. Um, is it, does the Bible say that government's job is to provide ed ed education? Mm. It seems like in the Old Testament specifically, it is the duty of the family to provide education. God tells the people of Israel, you teach your children as you're walking, as you're sitting down, as you're getting up, all of these things. Mm. It's not primarily, maybe there is a part to play for the civil government in education, but, it, but the buck stops at the family. Mm. That's where the buck stops. So these are things we have to, play out to see the, all the restrictions that God has placed on, on the civil government. Got it. So you might have somebody who, who identifies as a Christian who, you know, loves and, and wants all the more of, you know, uh, government-subsidized health care programs uh, and, and might not uh, intentionally be making an idol of the government thereby. They might, they might have good intentions. They might have good intentions. Good intentions. But what you're saying is, at, at that point, it might not just be a question of, are you making an idol of the government in your heart. There's also this, this important question to ask of, what are the biblical parameters for these institutions? What has God said, you shall go this far and no further, about various spheres of sovereignty? But when you deviate from God's plan and restriction, you end up going down a dark... It does not end up going well with you, right. with anybody, when we start to deviate from that, yeah. from that path. And it can lead to, and I think it progresses downward in a downward spiral to a deep, dark form of idolatry. idolatry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Praise God. That's a good word, bro. Good. Yeah. Hopefully that is satisfy the devil inside you. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, bro. That's a good word. That's a good word. Uh, but that's that's one of the things I want. So, like, I will say. So, I I I enjoyed reading the book, and of course, you know, like we we talk a lot about a lot of these different topics, and you know that I on many of the same platforms that you end up yeah, on. But one of the things that I was like yearning for in the book, that maybe this might be for a follow-up book, and I know we've talked about this too, is like, uh -huh. so idolatry kind of being a, a macro framework for understanding uh, some, of the, some of the troubles uh, in society explained by what's really going on in the human heart, that one of the steps to accompany that it, at some point needs to be what are the appropriate roles and parameters for the various spheres and institutions mm -hmm. that God has created. Mm -hmm. And and just like you said, like part of how we rightly answer that is what are the what has God given to government to do? And is it doing more than it ought? What yeah. has God given the family to do? And is it doing more than it ought? Yeah, I briefly touched church. on yeah. yeah, I briefly touched on in the conclusion some of the some of the so what now what practical applications yeah. of it. And I do address, you know, 
I drew a, a paragraph to the government rulers, like, hey, for you guys that are in power, consider this. I, I would love to eventually write more about the specific role of government, but that was not the scope of this exactly. book. Yeah. But I, I do reference a quote from uh, the great Emperor Napoleon, right, where he, he, he was well known to say that my dominion ends when men's conscience begins. Mm. Now, now, when I did research on that, I couldn't tell if it was a lament or was he, was he sad that he had no power over men's yeah. consciences? My power ends where man's conscience begins. Uh, yeah, or was he recognizing <laughs> the limits of his power, right, right? right? But he recognized there's a domain that he does not have, even yeah. as emperor, and that's over your conscience, my conscience, your conscience, um, freedom of speech, freedom of, of conscience to believe uh, what it is that you wish to believe, right? And it gets dangerous when Caesar starts to dive into the areas that, that belong to God alone. And I think Jesus brings that out in his um, discussion of the, ta of the, of the denarius, right? The, you know, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus asks for, bring me a denarius, and he, sh he says, whose image is that? And they say, well, it's Caesar's image. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a parallelism there. It's like, this coin has Caesar's image on it. Caesar made it. Yeah. Give it back to Caesar. And the parallel is humans you who have, have, you, you have God's, God's image on you, image on yep. you and that belongs to God. And you know who else has God's image Caesar on him? Has, Caesar has Caesar God's, has God's image on him. So oh, there is man, so much so we can draw out, that's I so think, good. from that passage there. I love it. That we don't know. That's sometimes overlooked. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. All right. I, I, I got like <coughs> more of these, John. How, how are we doing that? <laughs> We well, it's, uh, yeah, we got time, yeah. but it, I, we want to leave some Q and A time yeah, too. Yeah, for the audience there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tim these next like two or three. <laughs> 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 I love you, brother. Uh, all right, um, on page 127, you write, "Quote: Like Daniel, we must not comply with wicked laws, regardless of the motivation behind them. At the same time." Our spiritual freedom should not be a pretext for rebellion or a license for us to act as vigilantes. Again, page 137, quote, When Caesar makes a law that is contrary to God's law, Caesar's law is to be disregarded. It can be dismissed as having no binding authority in any way. This is because Caesar is a steward, not the source of true law. All right. Um, so when I read that, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm yesing and amen, amen in these. <laughs> okay. But, but I'm also like, a little unclear, like, so should Christians comply with wicked laws? Comply with wicked laws? Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, I would say no. Okay. Generally speaking. And what I mean by that is, let's, let's give an example. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We all love Nebuchadnezzar, old Neb, right? My favorite, favorite guy in the story, in the Bible. In fact, uh, the book say. is named Image of Gold, right? So Nebuchadnezzar makes an image mm -hmm. on the plain of Dura. Probably an image of himself, could have been an image of his god, doesn't really matter. Point is, in the Babylonian Empire, you can worship however you want. There's freedom of religion, except when the music plays, everyone bows down. Yeah. Alright, so you can worship however you want, except when I say so, you come. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they say no. And then, of course, they get in trouble for it. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar takes them, says, okay, I'll give you one more chance. I'll give you a redo. You get a, you get a mulligan, all right? I'll play the music, and if you bow down, good on you. But if not, what God can deliver you out of my hand? So that's a statement of arrogance that you could probably never, never top that one, right? And, of course, and they say, 
we will not obey, even if, you know, God will save us, but even if not, we will not comply. Mm -hmm. So it was a wicked law for Nebuchadnezzar to demand that everyone bow down to his statue when the music is played, and Daniel's three friends refused, and rightly refused, to comply with it. That's what the apostles say, we must obey God rather, rather than men, because they were commanded to stop preaching, stop preaching in the name the of Jesus. That's right. Right? Yeah. So that would be, the, you know, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees were, were commanding them, stop doing it, and they said, you, you decide. Is it right, better to obey God than to obey men? You, you let us know, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a rhetorical question. Okay. Is that losing? Is a little <laughs> zing to it? There's a little zing to it. Yeah. So those are just two examples. You have Daniel in the lines then as well. That's mm -hmm. another uh, example of him not complying uh, with, a, with a command that was a, a wicked command, even though uh, uh, Darius loved Daniel. They were great, uh, great buddies. So are there examples where Christians should comply with wicked laws? Can we, can we talk about today? Yeah, we can talk. We, we, yeah, you bet, uh, the devil's in the details, right? So, sure. So, so let's talk so, about. So, give me an example. Do you have an example? I do. Do you well, have an example, Mike? Well, sure. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think of some of the uh, <coughs> some of the uh, controversies that have been highlighted in the news about, um, uh, you know, even those in the service industry being uh, enforced or expected to serve uh, hmm. people who um, are celebrating the LGBTQ. Movement um, and and cake bakers and stuff. Yeah, like like the baker. Yeah. 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 Um, or the government official who is uh, in charge of giving out licenses, marriage licenses. Mm -hmm. um, when the government said this is now legal, they said, "Well, I though I'm hired by you, yeah, I'm not going to." Yeah. Yeah. No. So, and I think I also do just a caveat. I'm not, I I will answer the question. I'm not trying to weasel my way out of that one, but I do I do want to make a point though that the intent of this book is was not to talk about uh, civil disobedience. Understood. Right. That I, I I mean there's I talked a little briefly about it, but I didn't want to go off on a yeah. rabbit trail on that. But that being said, yes, there are wicked laws and and referencing the let's say the cake baker situation. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the government would be demanding that you use your artistic ability to celebrate something that you don't believe is morally right. Okay, so you're a cake baker, and someone says, I want a wedding cake for same-sex wedding, whatever the case may be, and you say, I can't do that, I don't believe that that's, that's marriage, it's against my, my conscience, and Caesar says, you will do it, or I will throw you in jail. Okay, and so I would say Caesar's wrong. He has stepped out of line. He's now entering the realm of conscience and trying to command that kind of obedience that really is between you and God, mm -hmm. in, in, in a way. And, and it wouldn't be any different than going to, let's say, um, uh, a Jewish uh, a cake baker and saying, I want you to make a cake for my neo-Nazi rally that I'm having next week. Or go to an African-American baker and saying, I'm having a KKK meeting, and I want you to bake me a cake for celebrating uh, you know, the anniversary of, of the KKK, or whatever the case may be. And no one would say, oh, yes, they should be made to do that. Like, really? But yeah, we're going to have different standards when it comes to what you, what you mentioned. So I think that would be an example of a wicked law that, that Caesar's not right to command. Mm. Right? Parents can't command their children to sin. Mm. And children are not obligated to obey their parents into sin. They're to respect their parents and to, I think, respectfully decline to obey when being commanded to sin. Yeah. That's, that's how I would say that. Yeah. And it's no different with regards to the people and, the, and their leaders.
Got it. So, hopefully that answers the question. I've got one more, and then we're going to turn it over to. I'm going to use my the bully pulpit here, and then we'll turn it the over to the audience for uh, for some Q and A. Oh boy. All right. Uh, on page 161. Mm. So you you say in um, you know kind of one of the main points here, and we've been talking about this for. Quote, for if there is no God above the state, then the state itself becomes a God, <coughs> the highest authority above which there is no further appeal. And that was a citation, I think, of an article written in 2015 by Doug Wilson. Mm-hmm. If, if I can reframe the danger you're calling out mm-hmm. just a little bit, it, it, it's that it's dangerous when a state is not under the authority of God. It, yeah, and it doesn't recognize it doesn't. that there's any authority above itself. Yes, got it. So that's dangerous. So my first question is well, my, my last question, I guess. Um, does that include so for Doug Wilson, that yeah. includes the first table of the law. I don't know specifically all of what Doug Wilson holds to, if that's what you're asking. No, no, I'm not asking that, but okay. I'm asking when we think about the state being under the authority of God. Yeah. I'm asking for us to tease that out a little bit. All right, sure. What does that look like? What does that mean? Does it include all of God's law, first table included? Only the second table? If so, why? So I, I, I know you know where I'm going with this, but, yeah. but like, well, how do we kind of think about this as Christians when we think about the state being under the authority of God or when we talk about rights, right? Yes. Everyone has rights and... and, and yeah. uh, and, and appeals to their rights as such. I have, and yeah. the, you know, one of the legitimate questions that can be asked is, where do rights come from? They come from God. They, they come from God. They're God-given rights. They're God-given rights. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so then, when when we think about what constitutes a right, right, we're thinking about, you know, what are those rights that God has has given yeah. has given to human beings as yeah. as being made in His image. Mm-hmm. So, I guess what I'm getting at is, where are we? we we're comfortable with that. You know, we're, we're comfortable with the notion of. Um, you know, let's say a Martin Luther King Jr. who's appealing to uh, God's uh, to, to God's word and and to some extent to our our being made in God's image and the intrinsic human dignity over against certain uh, racist laws that were in effect oh, yeah. at the time. And yeah. we we look at that and we say, okay, in in many respects, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. Right? So okay, but but and but we then don't tend to take that next step and say, now does that mean that there are that the state is under God's law, such that the state needs to, uh, let's say, recognize the the one triune God as the as the one triune God that He truly is, and have that somehow codified. You're talking about an established religion, like an like an established state religion. Sure, is, would be your concern. Well, there. I'm wondering how, how do we decide which laws to draw the line at when we think about the state's accountability to God's law? Yeah, well, that will take. First of all, it would take a lot of. It would take time and work. I mean, you're going through all the laws in the Bible and and, and teasing them out and and doing the exegesis and saying, okay, how does this first apply? to uh, the original context, the people of Israel, let's say, right? And then, okay, now how would that apply to the new covenant uh, people of God in in the church? And then as one of those, as a Christian, how would that apply to me? And then you could say, okay, how would that apply to, let's say, non-believers or even even the civil government, if there is an application uh, there? And and so, um, you know, you'd have to kind of work through that. But I think a general framework would be some of the more clear passages, uh, the, the give unto Caesar what is Caesar's 
passage. Romans 13, the civil magistrate is an avenger, punishing evil. Or, and Peter says uh, uh, the, the, the civil magistrate has been given the sword to punish evil and praise the good. Mm. So there's a, there's a sword wielding against evil and a praising of the good. And I think within that context and uh, with, with God being the Lord over speech and thought, that certainly, certainly shouldn't be the domain of, of, the civil, of the civil government. But as far as rights are concerned, yeah, that's definitely uh, man-made in God's image. It's, it's illegal, or unlawful, I should say, to kill, to murder, to murder someone, you know. Uh, Genesis talks about that, obviously, uh, and, then, and then Moses reiterates that with, uh, you know, you shall not murder. So in that regard, we all have a right to life because it is, it's wrong for us to be murdered, and we should, our life should be protected. And those who murder us should be brought to justice. And the same thing, thou shall not steal, right? Well, right, inherently, there's a right to property. You own something, and I am not allowed to take it from you uh, uh, without getting some kind of punishment for it. So again, all these rights derive from, uh, from God mm. uh, in, in his word. We need to do that hard work and, and show that. If I, if I go around saying I have a right to a car, or if I have a right to education, or right to healthcare, now we're starting to, that's getting into a more, it's not seems so clear cut, right? Because when you say that something is a right, what, it, what you are basically saying is, if you don't have that thing, the culture is wrong mm -hmm. for not providing it for you, right? Like, like everyone else has, is accountable to ensure that I have that thing. Yeah, you yeah. know, when you say I have a right to something, and there's like this distinction. I, I've heard it made for like negative rights and positive rights. Like negative right being, you know, my having this right doesn't impinge on anyone else's activity. Like no one has to. If I say I have a right to a car, someone has to make me a car. Right. I I can't make a car. Somebody has to make it for me. Yeah. Right. Versus I have a right to free speech. Well, no one has to do anything for me for that. That's right? true. Right. So, but I, so I, I and responsibility ties with all that too. With every right has a responsibility. So what I hear your answer being basically is like, look, we kind of need to take the various laws in Scripture and kind of on a case-by-case -case basis and tease out how they apply to the various spheres of life lived. Yeah. Is that uh, a fair summary? No, it certainly is. Yeah. Right. And that at the very least, do not be, don't be putting your heart in and trust in, the, in Caesar to solve, uh, solve your problems. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple of other questions I will pass by. Uh, I think what we'll do right now is we will turn the opportunity for Q&A open to the audience. Oh, so yeah. Tim has a roving mic got it. for <laughs> you to be recording <laughs> for posterity. Chuck. Don't mind if I do. Hey, Chuck. Thank you. Does this work? It's on. It's on. It's it's okay. We don't have any switches it's recording. A little further away. Can you hear me now? Okay. Oh, you're good. All right, good. Um, I like the Daniel Nebuchadnezzar reference. Uh, Me too. I see similarities between Daniel and Joseph and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, oh, yeah. in terms of their roles. They're both second to power, both working in administration for wicked pagan kings. I think they're both wicked pagan kings, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Nebuchadnezzar. And we, um, we see they're able to administrate as God's men, these are definitely men that can interpret dreams and visions and so forth. They're second in command to the wicked power. And yet we don't read anything in scripture about them bucking the system, so to speak, in terms of the laws of Nebuchadnezzar or the laws of <coughs> Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking somehow, is that silence 
saying that they were able to do all the things that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, or Nebuchadnezzar said without any qualm? Or is it only in the area of worship that they were able to, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego example, where they were commanded to bow down, will find nothing against Daniel except as it pertains to the law of his God. So it, it, it seems to be these people were able to administrate for pagan kings without any qualm of conscience, and I thought you might weigh in on that a little bit. Sure. I, I, Joe says a personal uh, favorite of mine. I love yeah. Can I, can I add like a little bit of a clear, not a clarification, yeah. that was a very good and clear question, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering in the same way, are we asking too much of our government? If I were a missionary in um, Azerbaijan, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, I'm, if I come in and I'm serving and I'm, I'm there working with the church, with, with the, the, the Christians there, I w would I expect or anticipate the, the, the government to do something or to be something that, um, I mean, why, why would I expect it to, to, to be this godly, God-fearing, you know, God submitting government. Um, you know, are we are we expecting or are we anticipating the government to be something that? I would I would view it as more of like an uh, what you what you desire, like what you want to see happen, uh, in a sense that let's say, um, you know, the Bible talks about husbands husbands right and fathers right and and husbands are to act a certain way towards their towards their wives. Now, you know, the Bible has some high standards for. For how husbands are to are to act as Christ loved the church, and one one could say that no husband does that perfectly. But some husbands are maybe you would call them deadbeat husbands, right, or bad husbands. That doesn't mean they're not a husband. It just means they're not fulfilling what God has called them to, and they might be unbelievers, mm -hmm. right? Now that that doesn't mean that they get a pass. It doesn't mean we say, well, you're not, you're not a believing husband, so these standards don't apply to you. You can be however wicked you want to be as a husband, beat your wife, whatever. It doesn't matter because you're not a Christian. Well, well no, we wouldn't say that. I mean, we would, reckon, we would pray for that man's salvation, his repentance and sanctification, that the Lord would change him into what he's supposed to be. And I, I would apply the same kind of analogy to the, to the civil government. There are plenty of unbelieving, wicked government uh, leaders out there, and we want them to repent. We want them to uh, do the right thing. Uh, I was just reading recently um, in, the, in the book of Proverbs. Uh, what is it? It's an abomination for kings to do evil. Uh, Proverbs, uh, I believe it's 16. It's, it's 16, I think maybe uh, 12, I believe. It's an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. So, so righteousness establishes the throne, and it's abomination for kings to do evil. Now, that's true for all kings, not just, not just Christians, right? So uh, in, in those countries, I would say we want them to do the right thing, but um, you know, we can't expect them to if they're not going to you know, repent and turn to the Lord. And as, as believers, we need to do the best that we can to, to model uh, what that is. We, we want to show respect. But we also don't want to um, co comply with wickedness. If, if they command sin, you, you are you should not you should not obey in that regard. Or if they if they if they prevent you, if they prohibit righteousness, works of righteousness. Uh, again, we don't. I mean, how many countries are there that have prohibitions against evangelism? 
but yet people smuggle Bibles and people send missionaries in and we're still doing, but, but people would say, well, hey, they, they banned it. You can't evangelize. Well, I'm sorry. We have the Great Commission. And, and I think the Lord Jesus Christ is a higher authority than any kind of civil government. He commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, even if the nations don't want it. Right? Even if the nations try to say no. Now, as far as Daniel and Joseph, again, we're not given a super amount of data as to, right. as to their lives. We know Daniel did not comply with, with, with that particular wicked law. But, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I, I think it's hard to say that they were, you know, there's a difference between the, the, the religious laws or the non-religious laws. They were all together. I guess I'm just inserting myself yes. into their shoes and saying they were able to function under Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, pretty well. well it helps. Except for yeah. stated yeah. cases where uh, <laughs> there was objection. You know? Well, it helps when you're the friend. Pharaoh really liked Joseph, yeah. and Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar liked Daniel at least. Not, maybe not at first, but kind of and later I, on. And I, being a township treasurer, sort of feel I have a role to carry out yeah. as a Christian in public government That's and right. carry out the duties of my superiors, whether I agree with them or not. But if they and command you to cook the books. Oh, uh, right, right. And if I were to commit fraud, yeah. uh, be commanded to commit fraud or some other immoral act yeah, in cover the up government, then yeah. I would have to consider they're going to roll my head. <laughs> See, that, that, that's, I think, where the civil disobedience comes in. The letters from the Birmingham jail, you're willing to go to jail, you're willing to suffer that's right. for your convictions. We can't just fuck government and not expect our head to roll. No. Uh, but we can yeah. do certain things under conscience where I know I will not comply with that, but I am willing to suffer the consequence. That's, that's right. where I was going with it. That's right, I agree. Okay. And, and, in, and while doing that, nevertheless, fighting for those reforms within government. And we're salt and light within that realm. Salt and light within that system. And exactly. being in that position gives us a certain influence that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I see yeah. Joseph and Daniel being yeah. close to power like that, not for self-aggrandizement, but to be an influence yeah. toward good. Yeah, mm -hmm. to, get, to maybe... Uh, tie it to maybe John the Baptist. You know, you tell the you tell the king he can't have his brother's wife, and you lose your head. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, he was willing to stand for that conviction, <laughs> and his head rolled literally. Yes. Yeah. I'm gonna pass it on to our next. It could be. Since this book is hot off the press, obviously I've not been able to read it yet, but it's intriguing to me, and uh, my question is. Um, when you talk about our society's dependence on our government, um, do you also cover in this book um, the Christian's role and the church's role, how we could be stepping up to um, fulfill some of those needs that mm -hmm. people look to government for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I talk a little bit of, about that uh, uh, in chapter, I believe, yeah, <coughs> chapter 6 and 7. Uh, ish there, and actually even towards the end there, because, yeah, talking about, okay, you know, you're set free from sin, what does that enable you to do? And I honestly believe that, that Christians should be the, the best citizens that any nation could have. The best resources uh, that, that any government could have would be, would be God's people, because um, we have integrity, we're, we're, we're obeying uh, God's law, we love our neighbor as ourselves, uh, we're not causing causing problems, um, and we're calling out idolatry, and 
the, the difficulty though is that when the culture becomes idolatrous, it looks host with hostility towards the Christians. And a good example would be, I believe, uh, believe in the book of Acts, Demetrius, uh, the silversmith, who got quite angry that idolatry was was on the decline because of the gospel, and he's not selling as many statues, and he's complaining to the to the government that his bottom line is getting affected. His idolatry business is getting affected. Well, it will. That's right, because of because of the gospel, it will. And if and, and that's it's gonna so there's gonna be some pushback with that. And as far as Christians and our responsibilities, I definitely believe that we can be uh, the best citizens, model citizens, doing what we can to love our neighbor, uh, to to set that example uh, as well. And I talk about also more specifically like parents in the home. Uh, in the conclusion of the book, uh, young adults, uh, and you know, as vo as voting citizens, different things that we can do uh, to to set that example there. I think that's a really interesting, a really good and pointed and important question it is. because I, I was actually just having this conversation with someone the other day. Um, we, we have a, a friend who has um, financially fallen on some, some difficult times and we were just kind of having a conversation about what some of that looks like. And like one of the first questions being, um, you know, have you, have you had conversations about this with your family? Is, is your family able to help you in any way? And in this particular case, the answer to that, unfortunately, was no. Mm -hmm. The very next question is, are you part of a local church? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, are, have you talked with your elders about this? And have you talked with, like, who have you talked with about this at your, at your local church? Are you a member there? Are you plugged in there? That is such a, an important question to ask, I think. And, and to a lot of the uh, challenges that are faced by, real challenges, tangible, tangible challenges faced by, by people on, you know, just who are down and out, um, you know, financially or in, or in society generally, what does it look like for, for us to, to love them well? Uh, yeah. and, and especially for those, you know, as, as Paul writes, do good to all men, but especially those who are, who are of the household of faith. Yeah, and I also want to, want to point out real quick is that uh, it, while it's probably true that sometimes uh, Caesar, the idolatrous government, can, can try to grasp power, I think a lot of times what ends up happening is the family fails to do its responsibilities, and then the church fails to do its responsibilities, and the person that picks up the tab is the civil government. Right. He takes it and keeps it, and it becomes his. And it's hard to kind of undo that, but generally speaking, when the family fails and the church fails, that's where we end up in these situations, and the breakdown of the family and the, and the ineffectiveness of the church is, is a problem, I believe, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Do you address the idea of pride? Hold on, we got a mic coming. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all do good. You, do you get the book? Do you address the idea of pride being an idol? I know we did knowledge in the very beginning, but oh, uh, well, this book specifically focuses in on civil government, government being an idol. But certainly, I mean, in a way, pride is yourself being an, an, an idol like your your own perception your own uh, your own worth you know you're you're so proud of your own abilities uh, you basically set yourself up as I am my own God and that I think would be uh, kind of a source of, of pride um, and perhaps I mean certainly Nebuchadnezzar is a big example of that you know you know look when he stands on the walls of Babylon look at look at what I have created you know I with my own hand have built these things and then God strikes him down and says, no, you didn't. 
I actually see like idolatry as so some yeah. of what we've been talking about in idolatry of government with like I, you, you can hear some pride behind that too mm-hmm. where it's like um, you, you know wh- when there is some benefit extended beyond that which God has given to the government to extend the, the longer for which that is in place, the more and more there comes to be a sense of, um, I deserve this, or I am I am somehow entitled to X as a right, um, and and there is some some pride that's that's dormant behind that too. I suspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. Any other questions? No. Just a practical question. How does this affect your home? How does this affect my home? Well, it, honestly, as I've been writing it, it has been convicting, too. Right? I mean, it's... it's exactly, that's right. And, you know, I, I say, as, as Christians, we need to remove the, the log, right, out of our own eye before we can even work on the little specks in our brother's eye. And I think we, it starts in the home, right? And, and so I, as a parent, need to model what it means to be in authority and under authority to my children, right? Um, I, I spend a, a good amount of time talking about that in the conclusion, because uh, I, as, I, as I dove into studying more about Hitler and Stalin, it was very striking, and, and I'd love to do some more study on, on other tyrants and dictators and see if there's any other parallels, but both of them had a, a alcoholic, abusive fathers in the home. Uh, there's a story that I read about Hitler's older brother being being choked up against a tree and, and passing out, and uh, Hitler's older brother ran off at age I think 14, and the father started taking out his his anger on Hitler, who was nine at the time. And there was uh, one a story where Hitler even said that at some point he decided to no longer cry when his father beat him, and uh, he just like shut down all of his emotions. Uh, same thing with Stalin. There's a story in which his father picked him up and slammed him on the ground so hard that he had blood in his urine for several days. And in fact, even his own mother beat him, Stalin's mother. And when he was the leader of the Soviet Union, when his mother was on her deathbed, he went to her and he asked her why she beat him so much. And she said, it, it's because it made you the man you are today. It made you the man, and it's like a man who murdered millions, millions of people. And, and, and was very tyrannical. So it's just kind of interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that if you're not a perfect parent, your kid's going to become a tyrant when he gets home. <laughs> That's too much pressure, right? But, but in a way, like, the toddlers of today become the tyrants of tomorrow unless we model for them what it means to wield power in a responsible, biblical manner, right? Because we're both in authority over them and under authority to the church elders and to the civil government, and of course to God. So it has been convicting, and I'm trying to uh, <laughs> learn in a way from God's Word as I wrote this book. Yeah. And that kind of mimics what God's Word says, too, right? Like, you will visit the sins of, of the parents onto their children, right? Like, you, you build, if there are sinful structures in the home, you're going to get sinful structures in the kids, generally. And I think something analogous you said, too, with respect to, to government, even. Like, you have, when there are sinful structures in the, in the government itself, you get a lot of that in the people as well. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. Thank. But that said, not to crank the pressure up. I mean, to crank it back <laughs> down. It's equally true that like you know, reading through this and especially reading through some of the parts about uh, uh, 
like to Tim's point, he just asked about you know the impact of this and being a parent, and you did make mention of that, and you you explicitly talk in the book, you know, brings this out what he was just saying, where you know we are both in authority and under authority, and what it looks yeah. like to model that well for our children and with humility, um, and that was a that was a blessing to me to 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 read. So thank you for yeah, putting that out. Well, listen, this has been. Two guys in the Bible. Um, three today. Three today. Actually, a whole bunch of people. A whole bunch. <laughs> exactly. Three I love it. In this society. <laughs> well, listen, if, if you're out there, you're listening, or if you're watching online, uh, you can reach us at the number two, two guys in a Bible podcast at gmail.com. We can be reached on Twitter at two guys in a Bible, Facebook.com forward slash two guys in a Bible, or two guys in a Bible.org. And please feel free uh, to reach out with comments, questions, feedback. Leave us reviews. We love reviews, uh, especially. If you have any hard questions, I would say this past Especially five-star reviews. Yeah, (laughs) five-star reviews. (laughs) Um, But yeah, please feel free to reach out. Uh, We love the feedback, and we love hearing from folks who are are listening. Uh, And any questions, follow-up questions you weren't able to ask, please do feel free to reach out. And with that, God bless, and thank you all for coming and listening. All right, take care. God bless.